Hello, welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast where we share stories, insights and strategies that go beyond some of the numbers we encounter in our work life. I'm Susan Lee-Trivon. I work with organisations who put people first. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. And together with my guests, we place a lens on and focus in on the people side of work life. Because we know that it is people who do the work, not numbers. And if we are treated well, we will perform well and might even generate better numbers. What is leadership? It seems to me to be one of those concepts that's notoriously difficult to pin down. How do we know if we're competent or incompetent? How do we know if we're good or bad? What makes us a leader? Are we born with it? Do we learn it? Are there specific traits? There's so many questions. And in fact, if you go on to Google and put in what makes a great leader or anything about leadership, there are oodles of books and papers and videos about how to develop your leadership skills or how to be a better leader. And this week, November 22nd to 26th, 2021, is International Leadership Week. And there's always a week about something, but this one caught my attention because the theme of the week is leadership reinvented. And it's always good to look at these terms, isn't it? And try and understand what do they mean? How do I translate it into my day-to-day life? And at the end of the day, a leader is a person. People like you, like me, like all of us, we're all people. So do we all have the characteristics or traits or talents or training or expertise or some combination of the above? that makes us or allows us to be a leader. Recently, I was co-facilitating a session on leadership development with a group of middle managers. And they did come out with a list of traits that of course we'd love to see in our leaders, inspiring, unwavering, pioneers, self-made, communicate with conviction and clarity. Yes, of course, these are the things we want to see. But is that about us or about them? There's a great video, and if you haven't seen this, I recommend it, it's three minutes. I'll put a link in the notes called Leadership Lessons from Dancing Guy. And the premise of this is anyone can stand up and dance on their own on a hill like a lone nut. But once they've got a follower, they've converted someone to join them, then you can convert more followers. And without the followers, the original person who stood up on their own to speak up, speak out, dance, whatever it is, is just a lone nut. So think about that, because it's about who follows. And in the book, Nine Lies About Work, 
The authors talk about this. They say that a leader is someone who has followers, plain and simple. The only determinant of whether anyone is leading is whether anyone else is following. So when we talk about leadership, we don't tend to talk about the feelings or the hopes or fears of the followers. But do we? Because actually, when we say what we want to see in a leader, that is about our feelings or our hopes or our desires. They're the type of people we aspire to be. And I think it's an interesting way of looking at leadership. So maybe that is leadership reinvented. We focus on the followers. We focus on people, putting people first. So to go with International Leadership Week with the theme of Leadership Reinvented, I put together a selection of different pieces from different episodes where people talk about leadership. In the first segment, we have Helen Joy talking about how by giving your people the opportunity to do what they're best at, to the best of their abilities, and the trust that bring you so much back. And then we move on to Gib, who talks about how there fundamentally is a leadership problem. And that people who have got to the top are unlikely to be the ones to turn it around. He also believes leadership can happen at all levels in the organisation. Jenny goes on to talk about the day that we show who we really are as a leader. And with Caroline, we talk about the mismatch between perhaps my intention of leading and the actions that I use to lead by. Luke takes us through how a growing business adopted a cultural manifesto to involve and transform traditional leadership and management structures to a people-first culture. And then Sheila talks about the people first culture and how when it's really present that you have all the good stuff the pixie dust she calls it and then we go to kevin kevin was the md of java house africa and kevin starts with the individual and talks about instilling purpose in an individual all the way up to his own purpose and what kept him going. We go to Sue, who talks about more inclusive workplaces and how we should be striving to create the workplace so that people can come to work and bring their whole selves. And then we hear from Eamon about the power of being yourself as a leader, authentically you flaws and good stuff. And then a brief snippet on why some of these changes are happening now from Helen before finally listening to what Caroline has to say about how leadership is a huge honour and responsibility. I hope you enjoy this episode and take something from it. Think about followers, think about leaders, think about the traits you want in the people who are leading you or you want to show as a leader. And where does that come from? And finally, 
a quote by Henry Mintzberg I came across that I couldn't help smiling at. Leadership, like swimming, cannot be learned by reading about it. And maybe it can't be learned by listening about it either. But listening or reading does sometimes spark something in us that allows us to ask questions or think differently or see from other perspectives. And I hope that that's what you get from this episode. Um, I was talking to someone this morning, we were talking about the fact that only 16% of people in the UK are engaged, fully engaged and passionate about their job. Another 15% hate their job. That leaves a really big number in the middle that really don't care. And that worries me more than the number of people that hate their job. I've been in this field for 20 years and so much has changed in that time. And we still use a lot of the same principles and models, but the willingness to understand that the stuff I've been banging on about for 20 years actually has value and has a massive benefit to the bottom line business. If you give your people the opportunity to do what they're best at, do it to the best of their abilities, and the responsibility to get on and do it, and the trust to make that happen. They will bring you so much back. Since I joined the workforce, there is definitely a shift and and people coming after us are demanding it. I hate to think that we're in the older generation now, but we are. But at the core, there is still a leadership problem. There absolutely is. And I've often felt that that in many companies, at the top of many companies, I I mentioned Unilever as one of the exceptions that kind of proves the rule, but there is still, to this day, this view of, of on one hand, we have our core business and what we do, which is numbers and profit and short-term maximization of profit. And that's what people have been programmed in, in business schools. and, And no one's going to sack you for doing that. And then on the other hand, there's this view we do good over here. So the right hand is doing business and the left hand is doing good. And they see these things as either ors. And they have to converge. They are converging. And it's a false dichotomy to think that it's doing business or doing good. The old kind of business versus CSR or philanthropy where a group of people hanging off the side do the, the good for the, the rest of the business. And yes, leadership is lacking. And the, the notion turning back to the the entrepreneurship conversation is that, to my mind, leadership can happen at all levels in the organization. It is not associated with a fancy job title or a SVP or a C at the beginning of your title. I see leadership coming in in all sorts of different um, guises. And in some ways, the propensity to drive change in this way and the affinity towards this purpose agenda the climate agenda, whatever you want to call it, is in some ways inversely proportionate to the level of seniority in the firm. And I'm probably, can I say pissing off? Um, yes, you can. You, okay. <laughs> um, pissing off the the senior people by, say, by saying that because there are some great folks, but frankly, this wasn't taught in business schools in the, in the, in the 80s and 90s. People that have got to the top in what I see as a fundamentally broken and unsustainable system are unlikely to be the ones to turn around and change it. Therefore, we'll probably will need some top-down enablement, but 
the surge from bottom up, the surge from entrepreneurs that can wake up to the potential of business and the opportunity that there is. I'm not saying, oh, we just have to make less profit and, and do more good in the world. I'm saying by doing good in the world, by addressing the sustainable development goals, these 17 goals and goodness knows 300 and something indicators that there are, they are mouthwatering opportunities for business in disguise. They are simply talking about how we find ways of feeding and nourishing the next billion that are coming on the planet, and they are coming, and how we provide them with access to quality education, clean energy, healthcare, sanitation. That's the goals, right? And if we can rethink business models, if we can innovate around how we collaborate and how technology will play a role in all of this, then it is a prize for business. And some reports, the UN Business Commission estimated that to be about 12 or 13 trillion dollars if business can engage in achieving the SDGs by 2030. So it's it's an opportunity that business is at the moment not maximizing. So the classical definitions of strong, powerful leaders, they're, they're not the people who I look back across my career and think, wow, I'm so glad I work for those people. They're, they're the ones who took the time uh, to build a team, to nurture the individuals who work for them and, and to make us all come together into something that was more powerful than the sum of the parts. Teams are built on how tense moments are handled, I think is the reality. And so I, I would always say to people, never shy away from a tense moment because to me, that's the mark of an underperforming team. Always embrace it, but really think about how you're going to embrace it and think about how are we going to look back at this moment in a week, in a month, in a year? And how actually do we make the story that we tell about how we work under pressure something that we are proud of and is part of what makes us a resilient, uh, high-performing, interesting, fun place to be? Because I think even in tough moments, there can be moments of humour, fun, and, and actually moments of intense pride. If I look back at some of the toughest bits of my career, you know, where we had to go through rounds of redundancies or where we had to go back to the banks and ask for more money, or in one instance where the company even got uh, put into receivership, doing that well is actually really, really important. And I think those are the moments where you show who you really are, the values that you embody, the quality with which you do your work. Because actually... On a sunny day when everything's going fine, most of us can look good, yeah? It's, it's on that kind of wet Friday where we're at the end of our tether and we're kind of crawling our way through the mud. How do we show up on that day? That's, that's when we really work out who we are as a leader. Nobody goes to work hoping to make everybody else's life miserable. Agree or to scare the crap out of people in the office or anything like that. So where is the mismatch between my intention of leading and the actions that I use to lead by? I think that's a really great question. I think possibly there's a couple of things. I wonder whether some of it is, is the word consciousness. So the lack of clarity around actually, what is my responsibility as a leader? How do I even want to lead? And I think the other thing is, and this is certainly an observation I've had, even in all of the years that I worked at Mars, where I was given so much wonderful investment in my personal development on how to lead others. I don't think 
that I spent much time understanding myself during that time and understanding how what it meant for me to be resilient, what I needed for me to be okay. Because if I'm not okay, I'm not going to bring my best self to work. And the poor people around me are going to get the stressed out version of me. And I think my observation is so many leaders end up burning themselves out because they're so busy serving others before they've learned to really harness themselves, understand themselves, work out what it is that makes them brilliant and what things they can put in their life in order to be able to bring that brilliance every day so that they can serve the people around them. Since the company was founded, it was always focused on creating a fun place to work. As, as like no company founds itself and thinks, oh, we're going to create this horrible place to work. We're going to micromanage people. We're going to um, create these toxic workplace cultures. Like nobody's going to want to come and work here. Like no one starts with that, that ambition. Uh, it just happens to sort of materialize over time. We started with the same sort of good intentions of becoming a fun place to work. And we had a beer fridge and nights out, company events. And we even go away on an annual retreat. We've been to Budapest and Barcelona. We've been skiing as a team. And they were like really good, fun events, good team building, good bonding. But I suppose we got to the sort of the end of, well, middle of 2017, end of 2017. And the company was growing very quickly. We were sort of tripling in numbers and then more and more people joining from other agencies or joining as their, as their first job or coming from more senior position, things like that. And you've got all these different cultures coming together in one place. And we started to realize actually, while we had focused on creating a fun place to work, we had missed a lot of the the important ingredients that create the culture, which is around putting people first and giving people more responsibility and trust and freedom to be able to work in a way that's right for them. And I think we went, we went through kind of that, I suppose it's, um, I'm trying to think of the right word for it, but it's kind of a, a moment in time where you've got, you can either change it or you continue as you are and it kind of just stays the same or gets a bit worse. And I think that's what happens in a lot of companies. It just one small thing sort of trickles on, becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, sort of snowball effect. It just it gets worse and worse and it's too big to handle. We were still small enough where we could change it. And so the directors looked at the, the business and where it was and felt that actually there were issues that were bubbling beneath the service that we needed to deal with. And that was things like micromanagement. That was things like people being confused about what the flexibility looked like at the company. Why can this person come in at 10 o'clock and I can't? Why can that person work from home and I can't? Who creates the rules? Who decides when and where people can and can't work? There was sort of like clicks were starting to form, all these like little things that you get as you get a growing company. And it was just that kind of breaking point where we really needed to, to focus on this. And so the directors of the business sort of, again, like, really important because if you don't have the leadership team on board or the founders or the board or whatever it might be the directors you're not going to make change so it really needs them to, to be for this and be pro this and so that was what 2018 was it was rolling out this manifesto of change and getting to the point where we'd i suppose just lifted all that traditional framework and got to the point where people could choose when and how they worked like where they worked we removed managers from the system we've got people setting their own targets we removed appraisals and salary setting and introduced sort of different ways of being able to cope with those traditional systems and ways of being. And then from that, it was, okay, we've now got the foundations in place for this culture. What do we do next? Because with culture, it's one of those things where it does constantly evolve and constantly change. And I know you talked about it at the start, but 
if you stand still, you'll end up going backwards <laughs> because ultimately it's like a game of culture. And so for us, it's just constantly evolving, constantly pushing things forward, testing things, trying things, see what doesn't work, keeping the team involved all the time. So keeping that team involved throughout has been really key. Even to this day, we had a, a conversation yesterday with the whole team on transparent salaries. I think it was in the initial manifesto and before it went to the team with the idea of having transparent salaries and moving to that. But at the time, because of where the culture was, we weren't at the place where it could happen. It would it was it would cause problems. But we've got to the place where we could have those conversations in an open and safe space. And psychological safety is a really important thing that comes up a lot when it came to transparency salaries, which just goes to show that actually we've managed to create this space where it's not just about fun and frills and sort of ticking boxes and, and trying to create something to showcase and to show people, but actually we've created this safe space where people can come to work and be themselves and can be honest and can give feedback and, and can do that. And it does take time. Like, as you said, it's not like an overnight thing. For us, it's taken three years to get to that point, but it's been a, a good journey so far. <laughs> so car trawler puts people first. And I, I don't think every organization can say that they put people first. How does that atmosphere work in an organization? That's a really good question. It's such an intangible. When, when I joined Cartroller uh, and I'm there five years now, it was the thing I was most struck by was it's a really people-centric organization, people-centric culture. And somebody said to me a few weeks ago, culture is king in car trawler. And, I, you know, I would never have used that terminology, but it, it absolutely is. It's such a team player based organization that it's quite, quite unique in that regard. It's also certainly we've worked hard as an LT to we, we really adhere to the Lencioni kind of model and framework and um, the five dysfunctions team. We have a team coach who whips us into shape every couple of months and keeps tabs on us. But we've really focused on the core fundamentals of organizational clarity, communicating that clarity, over-communicating that clarity, minimizing confusion and politics. And when that's present, then you have the good stuff. And for me, the good stuff is that you're creating that environment for people to flourish and thrive. I think role modeling the good stuff too, like as, as leaders across the business, but everybody in the business, there is such a collegiate atmosphere. We don't nurture rock stars or mavericks or the big egos. And I've worked for so long in so many different companies. Like it's so rare and I mean, I, I say this, I, I, the team is sick of hearing me saying this, this is such a moment in time, like it's fantastic. We're so, so lucky to be together. It's like alchemy, but it all comes together. You're afraid it's nearly like the pixie dust. You're like, oh my God, if I, if I, if I press it too hard, it's not going to work. You know, it's brilliant. Like it, it really is. And I, I think because of that being present and that's what's celebrated. And so it's kind of like, it's low ego, it's humility, it's authentic, but it's credibility through knowledge. And they're like our core fundamentals for a leadership piece. So then the big ego, the bombastic stuff just doesn't wash, you know, it's kind of like that might work somewhere else, but that's not what, that's not what it's going to give here. So that's a really, a really core piece. And, and as an LT, we work hard to ensure we're role modeling the good stuff. I'm not saying we do it every day, but we damn well try. But equally, we're very much around that whole peer-to-peer -peer accountability, holding each other to account. Um, it's obviously results driven, but the most important piece is that we trust each other. We've got each other's backs and, and it's, it's vulnerable trust. So it's about us being able to say, Jesus, like I've, I've had a rough week this week, you know, and being able to lean on each other and, and that that's okay because not every day is fantastic and not every day you will be on top of your game. And that's cascaded throughout the organization. Like, so I think 
pretty much anyone across the business would say they, they love their teammates. They love what they're working on. They're working on cool stuff. They're solving interesting problems. It's challenging. It's not for the faint hearted. And I say that to people at interviews, but that's, that's how we, that's for me is how we, our culture manifests itself and maintaining that in a remote and moving to our hybrid world is definitely going to be our challenge going forward. How does an individual embrace their day, right? So a lot of people think it's about showing up, right? And so we used to try to help our staff understand that when you're at work, you're actually there to serve a bigger thing than yourself. And your job is part of this package. But if you're going to be here for eight hours, might as well do your best. Might as well figure out what winning looks like in this position in this restaurant. So what does winning look like for a barista, right? Quality, speed, right? Cleanliness, engagement with the customer. So always trying to tell them you got to keep thinking. So continuous improvement is not a corporate thing that you talk about in the boardroom. It's every single person has to embrace. How do I get better at what I do each day? Right. Because if you're just showing up, there's no purpose because we, I mean, the, the whole thing is dignity of work and sense of purpose is what is the key for the future of humanity. If we're all going to actually have a functioning society. Right. And so that's what we were trying to get each person to understand. Music to my ears, Kevin. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing, but also for you. So what kept you going? Hmm. I mean, I, so at heart, I'm a hustler, right? And like, I like winning. So for me, it's like determining what winning looks like, right? So if you're a football fan, you're going to look at how your team's doing in the standings. You're going to look at each player's statistics of how they each one is performing. And that is going to help determine to you who gets time on the pitch right? That's going to give you a determination of how to compete against another team that has other strengths. And so I, I'm, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a geek for the numbers side of it too. So I would geek out on store margins. I would geek out on sales per staff member. I would geek out on all this different stuff because if you want to win at it, you've got to make money, right? You know, so it's not about your ego. Like I have all these restaurants. It's like, no, we're making money, staff are getting paid, you know, suppliers are getting paid, shareholders are getting a return and customers are getting quality for money, right? So that's for me, the game. And so that is a never ending challenge. It's easy to see what keeps me going. It's like, there's always something to do for all of those different aspects. And so there's never a dull moment. Yeah. I think as leaders, that's what we should be striving for is to create the workplace so that the people who come and work with us can bring their whole selves. And I look at that particularly as a woman and the same as you, there was an expectation that you checked your emotions at the door, but emotions are an important part of decision-making. We actually can't leave them out of the equation. And what I always found really interesting and very challenging was that the ways as a woman I might express my emotions were not considered acceptable. But the way a man might express his emotions 
particularly maybe around frustration and anger, were completely accepted within that corporate environment. I think they were, they were the norm. They were the norm. And I believe most women who've done well in corporate life have really been able to lean on their more masculine traits and who've also had to leverage those because you had to find a way to fit in. You had to fit in to some degree within that stereotype, you know, which is a bit of a Don Draper from Mad Men kind of stereotype. <laughs> but at least it's not Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> God, yes, at least not. But, but as women or as people of colour or as gay people, there's a whole part of your life that you had to cover up at work. Now, clearly I was a woman at work, but in terms of covering up some of your emotional responses to things or in terms of covering up your, your interests outside work or your family life, I hid my pregnancy. For, my first pregnancy, I hid the fact that I was pregnant until uh, I was halfway through. Wow. So Because you felt it, it Because I felt it would better. be judged in certain... Now, obviously, that was one that was going to have to come out but there was a particular transaction on the cards at the time <laughs> that I yeah. didn't want to be written off as she's about to go on maternity leave. So we don't really care about what she thinks. Now, wow. my, that daughter is now 19 years old. So this is not yesterday, but there are still horror stories around about these kind of things. I think we've made huge strides, but I also think this whole piece about what the ideal corporate worker looks like has not shifted anywhere near enough. Mm. And we've still got a lot more work to do because I do think really at this time, more than ever, actually, we're seeing mm. the benefits of having leaders. And it, they, this is not about all women leaders are better than all male leaders. This is about whether you're a man or a woman, which kinds of traits are you bringing to the workplace? And we're seeing that you do need to be uh, strong and have certainty about who you are. And part of that is actually really being compassionate and empathetic to other people. And this, mm. this balancing of strength with empathy. And I heard actually our former prime minister the other day say she believes the reason a lot of women do that well is because they have had to do that well through their whole careers. Uh, whereas men, that wasn't so required of them because that wasn't the norm, that the masculine norm they were trying to live up to in corporate life. So for them, I mean, and there's lots of fabulous men who do use, you know, both mm. traits. But mm. for a lot of men, they're only now discovering that it's okay to be empathetic with your team at work. And they've been doing that outside of work with um, their families or their football teams. There's lots, lots of research showing that this is much more transformational in terms of what you can deliver as a team and as an organization, if you are willing to be vulnerable, share more, collaborate more, because you're building trust by sharing a piece of yourself. So I feel like we're moving in the right direction, but it, it's much too slow for my liking. 
uh, in terms of seeing more women at the top who actually can start uh, not just opening the doors because the few women as long as we've only got token women there's very little they can it's do. not the norm they there's very little they can do they it's very hard to get your voice heard when you're the only woman so if you get to a critical mass that changes mm. things and and having greater diversity in mm-hmm. our leadership teams and greater inclusivity around all kinds of diversity you know whether it's gender mm. ethnicity sexuality mm-hmm. uh, cognitive diversity all of those things just enables us to have so many more perspectives Mm-hmm. over whatever it is that we're doing mm-hmm. as an organization but that can only be beneficial you became md of naked wine then quite quickly as well and quite young yeah so first job at naked for the first year i was the the wine development manager so i was traveling all over the world finding winemakers for our, our very fast growth at the time after a year roan went off to the us to set up naked wines usa over there and for some reason, he, he picked me to run the company, aged 26 or 27, uh, with no experience of running a team, let alone a, a company. But he must have seen something in me because uh, I definitely didn't see it myself. And we can talk about Rowan, but one of the great things he always taught me is that you value attitude over experience. And he could have hired someone a lot older and a lot more experienced than me. But if he didn't, I think it worked out well. But it wasn't going so well at the start. So I hadn't a clue what to do, <laughs> which is probably quite normal. You know, it's 35 people, there's 25,000 customers, about 30 million in sales, and suddenly you're supposed to run the thing. And it took a probably one of the most humiliating experiences of my life to really, I don't know, change a gear or so something happened. So I was invited to speak at this marketing festival down in London. And I'm quite introverted, so public speaking like just terrified me. And so I had to get up in front of 500 people to like just talk about naked wines. And uh, I'd done a couple before; they'd gone well. Obviously, terrified before them, but I did, did okay. And I think the biggest mistake I was making in the early days of, of being a managing director was, and I see it lots. So many people do it, kind of going into new roles. Is you try to be someone else, or you try to be the person who's just maybe vacated that role. So Rowan is this charismatic, entrepreneurial, softly spoken South African, set up three businesses for Richard Branson and Virgin, you know, created Naked, awesome idea, and just such a, such a presence, big shoes to fill. So not having a clue what else to do, it's like, well, I'm just going to try and be Rowan. And um, so I got up in, at this marketing uh, talk in front of 500 people, and I was talking about Naked and the model, and it was all going fine. And then I looked down at the audience, first mistake, and someone in the front row was just looked bored and it threw me and I lost my train of thought. The voice started to go dry and then the voice went and I just froze on stage in front of 500 people and obviously just wanted the stage to, to swallow me up there and then. And yeah, I've kind of recovered it and battled through the last five or six minutes and um, all, all fine in the end. But so I sat down afterwards and I'd had a mare, like I was just sitting there going this, that was awful. And I was speaking with a guy called Matthew Phelan and he kind of just like, you know, bigging me up and trying to pull me back. And he was like, people were loving what you were talking about, especially the winemaker. And I was like, oh yeah, thanks, whatever. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> but as I reflected on that experience, I thought, you know, that, there was something in that. And I, I, I was at my most comfortable talking about the winemakers and their stories rather than the business model and the funding and all that stuff. 
So I thought, right, next time I'm up on stage, I'm going to talk about the winemakers because people love that bit. And yeah, uh, that's what I should focus on. So I realized I needed to be more not Rome and be more authentically me and really play up what I'm passionate about. And those speeches are a walk in the park when I do that. And it just so happens, as it turns out, being authentically me, me means more sales when it comes to marketing and, and everything. So that was a big lesson I learned early on. It took a very tough learning experience, but that sense of being yourself for all its flaws and all its good things as well. And that was a huge learning for me early on. Clearly things have changed a lot in the last 20 years, but why are there still so many people that don't know how to manage or lead? I think because people like me and people like you and people who passionately believe this stuff works Mm -hmm. have been open to it for a long time. There's a massive culture shift, isn't there? There's a massive, massive demographic shift in the workplace. The demographics of the world have changed so much and that all of this leadership thinking and, and the belief that people can add so much more value than the return on their salary. If you uh-huh. allow people to flourish and build on their strengths and use their strengths and, uh-huh. and create teams that, that work like that. that, that thinking, it's only now that people that genuinely believe that are getting into the positions of real power to change that. Caroline, what does leadership mean to you? The work we do is hugely inspired by a quote from Bob Chapman, actually, from his book, Everybody Matters. And he describes leadership as the stewardship of lives entrusted to you, which I think is so powerful and so strong. And why I think that matters and why I think it relates to Jacinda and everything that she does is that I think she's driven by two things. I think she's driven by a really clear purpose and she's people-centered and I think when you combine those two things together it makes your ability to lead others you become inspiring to other people you take them with you you bring out the best in them you harness their uniqueness you give them a reason to come to work I think Jacinda has done that in a way that she's led through the pandemic, also in the way that she managed the terrible terrorist attacks in New Zealand she's very very clear on what's okay and what's not okay, but she embraces the population with huge empathy. And I think it's that balance of being really clear of your purpose and having this people-centric style that actually brings out the best in the people around you. And for me, that really matters because when we're really appreciated for who we are in the workplace, we not only do and bring our best at work and we collaborate more effectively with those around us, but we go home and we're better human beings at home. And the ripple effect of that on our families is great. And even more so, I think the idea of being able to let people be truly themselves in the workplace means that we listen to more perspectives. And that really matters because we need to make a better planet. And so the idea of leadership being the stewardship of lives entrusted to you, I mean, it's a huge honour and a huge responsibility to impact people's lives. And you can do it in such a positive way that that ripple effect is good for profit. It's really good for people and it's so good for the decisions we make about our beautiful planet as well. 
Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would enjoy it too. I believe we are all entitled to enjoy our work and the future of work life will be changed by those who put people first and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and organisations. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to have covered, guests you'd like to hear from, or questions for me, please drop a line to susan at beyond-thenumbers.com. And finally, please consider leaving a review.